sort of felt much happier about being a philosopher by training since moving to a cognitive science department. <laughs> As I see it now, Descartes um, is, you know, the most wildly misunderstood philosopher of all time. Welcome to Such That Cast, in episode 8. I just returned from having spent two weeks in Australia. I had several interviews lined up while I was there, but unfortunately I went down with a flu while I was in Canberra. So I didn't get to interview any of the philosophers at the Australian National University, where so many of my philosophical heroes reside. So I actually got only one interview out of Australia, but not just any interview. In this episode I talked to John Sutton out of Macquarie University, Sydney, who in many ways is an exemplar of what a modern philosopher should be. Not only does he have an awe-inspiring breadth of knowledge from all kinds of disciplines, he is also tremendously successful when it comes to showing the relevance of philosophy in other disciplines in particular, cognitive science. Just the fact that Sutton has been head of department for both the philosophy department and the cognitive science department illustrates a tremendous vote of confidence and appreciation for the constructive role of philosophy. We had a great conversation, and this episode also contains several elements I've been trying to include in this podcast. First of all, it is actually the first episode where we do drink wine while talking, and it is also the first episode in which the guest refers back to an earlier interview. I really enjoyed this talk, and I hope you will too. So here it is, episode 8, and the troublemaking and synthesizing mind of John Sutton. Sort of way north in Scotland. Yeah, sort of central Scotland. It's it's you know not not the the wild north, but um, yeah, Dunblane, um, which is now famous for Andy Murray, the tennis player. Right. <laughs> and also, yeah, you attended Glenalmond College, and then the next step I see is suddenly going doing a bachelor in classics at Oxford. It seems like you must have had quite a bit of intellectual stimulation uh, as a kid. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, fiction and um, books were around all my childhood. I mean, um, my mother had been a primary school teacher um, before she had kids. She pretty much um, stopped that after kids and um, worked with my dad, who's an engineer, um, a civil engineer. So, you know, radically different kind of of world from what I've ended up in and sports and the, the physical life and all of the outdoor activities of, um, I mean, they're both Irish, so the, the, of the, the, the Irishman. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it it was a very comfortable life um, as I grew up in you know, sort of semi-rural Scotland with wild, desolate moors and um, places to walk and rivers and rabbits everywhere. Um, yeah, the, the sort of intellectual background, when I think about that, I suppose I think about my formal education um, more than um, any particular part of my family life. It's just been stuff I've pieced together. Hmm. So you don't, do you remember any point of having the sort of an intellectual awakening? Uh, when did sort of that academic interest come? Yeah, sort of um, in waves, I suppose. Uh, I suppose I was always kind of nerdy in the <laughs> sense of being, you know, somebody who enjoyed cracking out 
puzzles and um, worrying about stuff. Um, from an early stage, I was not scientific and not mathematical and was into, you know, the humanities subjects and, and literature and, and history and stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, there were definitely some, some specific awakenings. I mean, the uh, the most direct origin of philosophy was a, a kind of general studies course that in the curriculum at high school at that time had been put in as an option. We happened to have a, a physics teacher subject which I was terrible at and really didn't enjoy which you know is very sad for me these days but but um, a physics teacher who took took this up and it was a, a kind of um, ready-made curriculum that some educational authority had put together but it was really a sort of introduction to Kuhn um, and it was you know what is a fact and and roughly what is normal science and what is a paradigm and I was just entranced that there was a different way of looking at what we'd been taught in that kind of unreflective way in science lessons and yeah. from there on I was hooked and in terms of a single source you know in, in earlier than that probably I had read as many of my generation Robert Piercig's Zen and the Outermost Cycle Maintenance absolute kind of classic crazy introduction to Socrates and Plato and the history of Greek philosophy and the search for quality wow. uh, <laughs> so you know th th those were the early stages um, but then literature was the other kind of big um, stuff I just love reading as a kid and um, still love reading academic work for the quality of the writing as well. So, um, yeah, philosophy was, wasn't was a particular goal on the horizon. It was just something that I sort of fell into. Right, because you went into classics at Oxford. Yeah. Uh, and then switched to philosophy. Uh, yeah, I mean, a, an academic future was absolutely not in my sight until a much later stage. I, I, I was kind of keen to go to a university where I could play lots of sport and have a really good time and do theatre <laughs> and stuff, um, and I, you know, I, I, I was happy in Scotland, but I was also happy to to get out and go somewhere else. And Oxford seemed like a cool place. Our school hadn't got anybody into Oxford to read English kind of for decades, so that was what I wanted to do. But they said, "No, nah, you know, that's too hard." Um, since you've learned Latin in the way that people still did, you might as well try classics. So I kind of crammed. Ancient Greek as well, really fast, um, and and squeezed in, um, and did so ancient history, Latin and Greek, um, and then yeah, the classic syllabus at Oxford also covers philosophy as well. And when we started to just get our teeth into a little bit of modern philosophy, that was when I thought, hmm, yeah, this is cool. I read through a book review that you wrote back in 1991, um, a critique of John S. Nevain's oh, wow. book on the occult tradition. Yeah. Uh, you seem to have been very confident early on. <laughs> it's a very confident <laughs> critique. <laughs> uh, and you didn't shy from leveling some strong critique against his writing. Um, well, another thing that struck me there was that, of course, it's not, not a big surprise that you had a deep knowledge of literature already. Uh, but you seem also to have quite some knowledge of the occult. Uh, was that an interest of yours? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, so the, the, the general um, historical interest, which was sort of behind um that that phase of my work was was in um kind of shakespearean renaissance english drama um you know i i directed plays like a, a, a neglected but really wonderful play by shakespeare's contemporary um john marston a play called the malcontent which you know, i still think is one of the the best um unknown jacobean plays around a, a kind of um in the revenge tradition and um, so when I got to Sydney, you know, it was kind of like, 
that was the sort of, sort of theatre I was into in the UK, but it's very much out of context here. So I started to read much more more general literary history and cultural history um, while I was studying 17th century philosophy. And of course, you know, the, lots of people in um, literature and, and politics and history were very well informed about 17th century philosophy uh, and were always doing contextual work and sort of historicist work. You know, this was the era of new historicism in, in the, the literary um, disciplines. And I just loved that. I wanted to sort of apply that to the, the philosophy I was reading and put the... Um, the great philosophical texts, the canon, you know, into context, say, yeah. So, for example, I mean, an example that I, I haven't worked on is Hobbes's uh, extraordinarily detailed treatments of sort of superstition and, and, and religion in, in Leviathan, where, you know, the range of reference that's that's required to kind of understand that goes way back to, to the classics, but also to an extraordinary occult tradition of, you know, theorizing about demons and angels and so on. So, uh, you know, I, I, I just, uh, I love that world. Um, and once you get into that world, um, you just follow, follow your nose about what you want to read up about. I was, I was, you know, wildly impressed as, as people were by Francis Yates's work on, on the occult tradition, on the Rosicrucians, on the, you know, the, the, the theatre, um, and on the art of memory, obviously, which, you know, became an important source, source for me. And you just sort of work your way into that world. And I, I was especially interested in the, I suppose, the, the, the bodily, aspect of of the occult i mean now you know you it's a legitimate topic respectable topic in the history of medicine um of course you know there was a kind of um route from the empirics the quacks the the people who sort of just tried out herbal remedies um this was a sort of you know empirical science yep. of, of of a of a kind just a, a method which wasn't based on school learning or, or reading stuff and treating people out of books and so um, there's been a lot of work. I mean, um, people like John Henry in, in history of medicine have showed really clearly how, how um, medicine, uh, medical methods developed out of um, those those kinds of magical traditions. Um, and the same is true in different ways in other sciences too. And I, I wanted to do the psychology of that, I suppose, right. the, the, the philosophy of mind or the, or the psychology, um, because just to take memory as an example, I mean, there is something importantly mysterious and magical about remembering um about the way in which you know in thinking about events 10 20 years ago i am in contact with stuff that isn't here yeah, anymore yeah, truth, yeah. just as in the present i can think about something that's happening on the other side of the world but memory is even weirder because the evidence is gone yeah. you know the, the only traces <laughs> remain there are just you know residues and, and vestiges if you're lucky sometimes not even that Some, sometimes all you've got is what you manage to carry around with you um and so uh, in in earlier historical periods, I suppose the the link between memory and magic and a topic that you discussed um, with uh, Luciana Floridi with messages was were, was really clear. And so, both in religious and non-religious contexts, kind of information transmission mm-hmm. um, is the the problem that all of those kinds of theorists are, are dealing with. Um, and information transmission is very often unfaithful. Um, you know, there, there is there is distortion. There, there is the interference and blending and integration of, of different sources. Um, and so, you know, in various sort of occult traditions, um, people were trying to work out well how how does content get transmitted? For example, across long distances in space or mm-hmm. time. And in a way, that's the heart of the problem of memory. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'm also very happy to see that you did your PhD. Uh... Very much inspired by Descartes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm a sort of a diehard Cartesian myself. Yeah. And I always get flack for that. Yeah, um, yeah. As I see it now, Descartes um, is, you know, the most wildly misunderstood philosopher of all time. So I see him as 
possibly one of the least Cartesian of philosophers, given what the label Cartesian exactly. um, has come to mean, you know, in that um, in Western philosophy, we see him as the kind of root of all evil. And, um, you know, Richard Rorty says this this was the original sin of modern philosophy, the invention of the veil of ideas. So my Descartes um, is, is a kind of natural philosopher. Uh, I, I was very directly... Um, influence i was really just coming along in the wake of my phd supervisor stephen gorkodger at university of sydney who at the time i started my phd was just beginning to work on what became his extraordinary intellectual biography of, of descartes you know stephen had calculated that i don't know the exact percentage now something like 85 or 90 percent of descartes correspondence was on what we would call science you know right. na- natural philosophy on, on on astronomy on on optics on the practical problems of um, you know, grinding lenses in the most effective ways and on physiology and, and stuff that we would think of as biology, medicine and so on. So that was the stuff that got me hooked. I was looking for a topic that could link history of philosophy, specifically 17th century philosophy, which for which I had a, a, a passion with something in philosophy of mind for which I, I you know, developed an, another passion. I just wanted to find a way to kind of integrate those problems. And, you know, partly because Stephen was working on Descartes at, at length, but partly because he had all of this extraordinary material on on memory, imagination, uh, and the role of the body in sentience and in in what we call thought. Um, I just sort of uh, got into that, and and I've I've really stopped working on Descartes um, in more recent times, partly because lots of other things have have got in the way, but also just because I I got a bit tired of putting my hand up after a talk and say. Yeah, you, this has been a really interesting talk, but where you mentioned Descartes, by the way, it's not the historical Descartes. Right, You're yeah, talking yeah. about the straw man of, of Western metaphysics who believed that you could deduce facts about you know, the structure of the, the comets from the cogito. <laughs> yeah. But also when it comes to your link, because Descartes and also some of the other philosophers you mentioned, like Hume and Locke, um, are often sort of ridiculed for their views on memory and so on. Absolutely, yeah. And, and, and their um, weird physiological hy- hypotheses yeah. in, in particular. Yeah, I mean, the the animal spirits, which were, you know, one of the early um, sort of passions of, of my historical work, which are um, the nervous fluids or the, the kind of messengers that roam through the brain and the body in the period before electricity was uh, discovered and discovered to be the sort of medium of communication in the nervous system. So the animal spirits um, gave a kind of way of thinking that's a perfectly legitimate and plausible way of thinking about the relation between body and mind and in particular um, bodily processes and and remembering and imagining and and thinking and decision making which I I think at a certain level of abstraction is kind of true so I tried to sort of pull out from the physiological details the 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 weirdness the outdated um, empirical claims although trying to understand why those those claims were made and get a vision of the kind of holistic interconnected nature of, of brain and body and then a brain body and world and of how all of those kind of conspire together to make mind or, or mindedness mm-hmm. precisely uh, that actually brings me to the next topic that i also wanted to talk to you about <clears throat> which is a topic that's been discussed to death in many ways but it is the classical extended mind discussion um so first of all just to say a bit about my view um one of the reasons I'm inspired by Descartes is yeah. the emphasis on consciousness. Not the dualism and all that, but just the emphasis yeah. of consciousness being the locus. Um, and that's also my view when it comes to extended mind, that, yeah, you might have an extension, but still the mind or the brain is still the locus. And, and many people find that unconvincing in many ways, that, mm. that you are anthropocentric, uh, if you mention that. Uh, would you agree with that? I'm not sure. I, I, I'd want to ask you some, some questions to make sure I understand. Um, 
I, I tend to um, think of cognition as much, much wider than consciousness. And, and in a sense, that's also the way that I, I've read Descartes um, in, in contrast to the, the standard view that Descartes is the great philosopher of consciousness. Um, I, I want to look at um, everything that he says we share um, with all the other animals who, who don't have the incorporeal soul um, and all of the functions of, of life, which in his view are realized or, or implemented in a purely mechanical system. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I struggle because I don't like the word mind or the word cognition and for different reasons I don't like the word consciousness all of those seem to me both kind of cross-culturally and historically problematic you know that there's some reason to think there aren't concepts like those in every historical and cultural context but more importantly than that in a way you know even where we do in ordinary life feel like we know what those terms mean we have less of a grip I think than we do on the kind of constituent cognitive or mental or psychological processes, things like remembering and imagining and, and believing and decision-making and feeling and all of the, the emotional and uh, the, the, the specific emotional and cognitive processes. So people, you know, people know what it is to imagine something, to, to dream, even though, the, although from another point of view, nothing can be more mysterious. So I, I want to try to focus in on, on, on what we think, both in ordinary life and in, in science, about all of those capacities and processes. We can then ask, Okay, given some other account that we bring to the table of what cognition is or what consciousness is, how do each of those capacities relate to that bigger problem? The case of dreaming and consciousness is a nice example because just in in classes, if you sort of get people talking about dreams, before you ever mention the word consciousness, and people give all kinds of theories, all kinds of examples, you know, they get really excited and share their their life histories and, and their dreams. And then you say, okay, great. So, you know, uh, tell me, when you're dreaming, are you conscious or not? And you often get about half and half, you know, because yeah. you're obviously unconscious. From another point of view, you're obviously conscious. Uh, True. So uh, that's just one of the symptoms of the sort of folk bewilderment about consciousness that makes me quite suspicious of it um, right, as yeah. a sort of way into a na- kind of natural kind for science. I see. Uh, but as <clears throat> in terms of, because uh, if you look at Clark and Chalmers' uh, hypothesis, uh, they emphasize the causal loop. Yeah. Uh, and at least it seems to me that the causal origin has to be uh, located in cognition somehow. Yeah, the, well, the causal origin has to be cognitive, yeah. Um, but again, I, I mean, not necessarily conscious. Um, so, I mean, the vast majority of work in, in cognitive science is on processes which which sort of may or may not be conscious. Lot, lots of them not are not likely to be conscious at all in linguistic processing or perceptual processing that's why we kind of it's so hard to discover the the mechanisms and yet they're still um when i say they're still cognitive um you know there's lots of sort of um, rules of thumb for working out why we we think of them as still part of the mind or cognition rather than mere mere body mere physiology that they're extraordinarily responsive to changing circumstances they're adaptive they're and they're flexible that they, they don't just sort of process information in the same way each time they uh, they allow us they're part of you know integrated systems which which can learn and deal with new information in in um, in adaptive ways so but it's sort of flexibility that's the heart of mental life for me it's sort of adaptiveness it, it's it's integrated so i'm kind of a, an embodied cognition theorist and an active cognition theorist in the senses that um 
you know the the the, the biological integration of of the, the the thinking and feeling body into its environment is sort of the heart of cognition but then i take that extra step of saying well sometimes given what we think about remembering decision making etc those processes can also loop out to include factors outside the body as well as outside the brain so it, it was complete serendipity just a huge stroke of luck um that as it turned out my interest in the extended mind and distributed cognition um ended up kind of dovetailing with a quite independent research tradition in cognitive psychology which has fueled you know a, a wonderful collaboration on autobiographical memory and social memory or shared memory perhaps collective memory though that that label is is harder to to pin down so with my colleague uh, here in cognitive science, Amanda Barnier, and, and a, a team of, of students and um, postdocs that's now through a couple of generations, over seven or eight years, we've sort of been doing philosophy and psychology or you know, theory and empirical work side, side by side. And the, the the link between the distributed cognition work and the empirical work on memory is that um, where Andy Clark and a number of other writers in philosophy about the extended mind had merely kind of mentioned social distribution as one possible form of um, extension or distribution of cognition that had never been a big theme. Um, I mean, in, in Clark and Chalmers' paper, they talk about a couple of examples of an, an interdependent couple or a waiter who might hold my desires, um, you know, rather than having them all stuck in my head. And we just wanted to take those ideas seriously. And and also with Clark and Chalmers um, sort of showcase example of Otto, the Alzheimer's patient whose mind is, is you know, putatively extended in the contents of his notebook. I mean, we, we, we wanted to sort of say, well, you know, what happens with real Ottos? You know, there are an awful lot of people around with, with um, troubled biological memories. Is this how they work? So we're now kind of six or seven years in, into that project. And as I said, the, there just was an enormous um, amount of luck in finding a, an independent tradition in cognitive psychology, which precisely studied in kind of rigorous um, and you know well-established ways um, the differential effects of remembering together compared to remembering on your own and, and what exactly remembering together might, might mean. So this connects with other areas of philosophy as well about what, what is a group and what, what might kind of group cognition um, be so what would be the social ontology of, of a group and what what kinds of group might have genuinely distributed or, or collective mental states as opposed to being a kind of mere aggregation um, of the um, mental states of, of the members so in the case of memory um, I mean the, the the examples that I always had in mind were just you know a, a family or a group of friends sitting around in the pub um, and chewing over old times together you know over a beer a glass of wine telling old stories now you know, over time, many groups like that actually kind of have some dynamism to them. The stories change, right? Mm -hmm. the, the emotions that are associated with the stories can often matter. The, the way those stories are, are interpreted um, can be part of the way in which the, the, the social um, network of the group is maintained and transformed over time. And so we wanted to find ways of sort of getting at that. Like, how can we study the, the, the contents of those memories as they're told and retold? How can we study the effect of being in a group on individuals um, who were the members of that group, do their memories change as a result? Now, a lot of that work in psychology that we're referring to had taken a very negative view of collaboration, of talking to other people. And this is understandable because lots of psychology of memory is based in a forensic context, in a legal context, where we're worried about there being a single true version that the court has to assemble out of the independent um, views and reports of all of the witnesses. So in most legal systems, witnesses are not allowed to discuss together 
um, what they experienced. Um, it, there are very strict sort of guidelines, and in, in some jurisdictions, you know, police, for example, are allowed to discuss, but not not witnesses. And the sort of idea is is that there'll be the potential contamination, or as psychologists often say, contagion um, from social interaction. So that such such that um, misinformation from one person can kind of infect and taint um, what another person remembers of the. Uh, of the experienced events. Now, all of that is true. Th those phenomena are real. They happen. They've led to terrible miscarriages of justice. Um, but they're not the whole story about the effects of sort of socially or interactively remembering. And they're very unusual kinds of shared memory because much more common forms of shared memory are, are ones where we know each other. And as family members or as groups of friends or as work colleagues or as teams, you know, who, who you know, played cricket together for 25 years, we're telling stories that we know about events that we shared together where our interpretations too interact. Um, and as we're telling them, we're often constructing the narrative together, um, creating and maintaining a kind of group identity as well as, as our personal identity. So the empirical research that we've done has been kind of responding to a lot of the existing negative take on um, social interaction and the, the allegedly pernicious effects that um, social influences have on memory by saying in certain contexts, actually talking about the past together or just thinking about the past together um, can have a beneficial effects or other kinds of emergent and transformative effects which are not necessarily negative. There can be other points to talking about the past as well as just preserving it in its, um, in its uh, full glory um, as it actually happened because what we're doing when we're remembering together is often for purposes quite other than the recovery of accuracy. Exactly. Also constructing a shared identity. In some sense. That, that's right. Yeah. So we're now working a lot with older couples, with people who've been married for sort of 40, 40, 50 years, looking, you know, which, you know, we, we've, we've um, decided that these are a natural sort of context in which um, not everybody, but many people have lived together sharing stories and sharing experiences and must be getting some benefit from it. And it doesn't happen for every couple, not for every context, not for every kind of, of memory task. There's sort of different kinds of distribution of cognitive labor, different kinds of transactive system in which we sort of share the resources um, of, of the past in, in different ways, and not just across individuals, and this is the last connection back to the extended mind, but also with objects and artifacts. And actually going into people's homes to do this work rather than bringing them into an empty, right. sterile psychology lab, working with people who are not just undergraduates but who have lived together for, for 50 years and sort of seeing how they negotiate the past together. They will jump up and look at the, the, the old diaries or the old photographs or the, the sort of calendar they have on the wall, the wall of the kitchen. So there's often a kind of integrated assemblage of systems which is kind of socio-technical, which has been studied you know, in science studies and anthropology, but not in experimental psychology. So we're just trying to you know, take those phenomena seriously, but also hold on to something of the, the greater control um, of the, the wonderful experimental psychology tradition um, by which when it works, we can actually work out why it works, because we know which of the many possible variables is contributing to the success. Right. This brings me actually to my next question, because when I'm looking at your sort of main areas, uh, distributed cognition, shared memory, uh, autobiographical memory and imagery, um, embodied skills and movement, one thing that seems to run through it, uh, at least all of those have severe implications for identity, uh, and what we mean by identity, and whether we have a stable identity or not. Uh, and based on your philosophical views combined with your sort of neuroscientific knowledge, uh, where do you stand on identity? It's very, it's a very acute question because, um, you know, when I uh, started working on memory um, for my PhD, 
I had been looking around for a topic which would link the history of philosophy to the cognitive sciences um, and allow me to um, kind of immerse myself in and try to contribute to contemporary issues in philosophy of mind and philosophy of cognition, but but have a bigger picture connection to more traditional philosophical questions. And I uh, I was sort of torn for a long time between you know two, the two that I discarded before settling on memory were action, you know, the philosophy of action and identity. And certainly at that stage, I, I was much more um, concerned with and, and tried to keep up with um, the debates about personal identity in, you know, in different kinds of philosophical literature. And in a sense, you know, where I've gone has all been a kind of deflection from that just because, partly for practical reasons, that once I got stuck on, on memory, there are enough things in, in there, though obviously, as you say, many of them connect back to questions about the self. But also just because I... I suppose I think it's too hard at the moment and I certainly don't have um, a coherent account of the self um, you know I've got very you know and I, I have not really kept up successfully with kind of either analytic or phenomenological traditions of work on personality for quite a while part of that was just you know um, being a slack lazy <laughs> person with other things to do and part, part of it is just um, an uncertainty that we've quite got the right questions going yet so I suppose if pushed I think let's study lots of the contributing maybe components though that you know I don't want to think of the components of self in a kind of analytic discrete way um, they're you know intrinsically integrated and, and connected you know in, in in usual the usual context when things are going okay but um, I, I, I want to look at those and then say well um, let's ask the question about how we um, construct or and, and maintain um, whatever sense of unity of self and sense of continuity of self we have and whatever actual unity and continuity we have out of these multiple components we're kind of com compiling and, and constantly renewing um, our, our identity over time and to start you know answering those questions you've, you've got to have a lot already um, in the bank in terms of a you know theories of language, um, theories of memory, uh, among other things, theories of thought, thought theories of embodied interaction with the environment, theories of interpersonal interaction, um, so that we can look, look at the, the various ways in which social um, processes are there right at the heart so that identity can kind of soak in from the environment. So it, it's, it's not something I have at the forefront of my mind as a kind of immediate thing to return to, but um, I, would, I would definitely like to one day... Um, in a sense, just push further on the kind of radical, extended, distributed views of mind and cognition to take those back to questions about the self and agency, and to think of kind of distributed agency in you know pretty much the same way that you know developmentally um, and and in adult life we rest ourselves, our agency and our identity um, on many things outside the head. You're right. Yeah. And one of your uh, sort of exemplary approaches there is combining neuroscience and philosophy. Um, one thing is being head of department for one department, but you've actually been head of department for both philosophy and cognitive science. <laughs> it's Why? Just, it's just very foolish um, <laughs> and being in the wrong place at the wrong time and failing to say no. No, I mean, I'm, I'm acting head of um, cognitive science just for a, a short period until uh, my wonderful colleague Anne Castles returns and takes over in the hot seat. Please, Anne, come back soon. Um, and um, uh, look, I, I, I really enjoy teamwork. Um, uh, that, I mean, that's that's the the basic answer that uh, I'm a kind of um, gregarious type 
who is happiest when engaged in a group project with sort of shared goals but different capacities and and skills among the the members of the team so I think you know like a sports team or a small theater group are, are my my models of how to live well um, to be doing something that you enjoy with a group of other people who are enjoying it and, and creating something new together and a good department can work like that um, so yeah I mean I, I spent a long time in the philosophy department and you know that my work as head had been um, absolutely shaped and prepared for by wonderful predecessors as, as head of department which had you know turned turned the Macquarie philosophy department into a, a fabulously successful but especially what's especially important is pluralistic philosophy department where you know our kind of explicit guiding light was this motto of creative interaction between traditions which I think is still really rare around the philosophical wor world um, uh, you know across all languages that there are very few kind of relatively small departments where all, so many really different things happen and that takes a lot of mutual work um, constant maintenance to make sure that all the institutional and intellectual and social processes um, re remain on track so since I moved over to cognitive science you know the the, the challenges are radically different totally different kind of people different activities even before you think about the different methods and intellectual assumptions people have they just have a very different lifestyle um, uh, I had always loved about universities how wildly different people were on the other side of campus you know when you happen to be on a committee with a bunch of people from economics and biology and plant science and geology uh, and they're just wonderful people you want to get to know them better and, and you think we get bored as philosophers, we sort of complain about our discipline and, and, and the fate of the humanities and everything, and many of our complaints have, have, have worth and we need to change things. But actually, don't think that the entire university is in the same boat as you are, because people live very, very different day-to-day -day lives. Um, one of the most um, obvious radical differences that has impacted on me is just the amount of collaboration um, that goes on in, in a department like cognitive science um, compared to, to philosophy. Philosophers are collaborating obviously an awful lot more than, than we used to um, and it's being incredibly productive but um, it's still a, quite an unusual thing uh, and in cognitive science and in psychology for example in many of the other constituent disciplines of the cognitive sciences it's just the way things work you know you don't expect that each member of the team knows everything about every part of the background sure. to the project it's an emergent product of, of everybody's skills right and what do you see as the most fruitful contribution of philosophy is it as as troublemakers or as synthesizers like what is what should a philosopher's role be in a cognitive science department those are two really good um labels for it and uh, uh, and it it's got a differ at different times in different contexts certainly troublemaker um, it, I mean that, that that obviously can can be done well or badly I mean some people make trouble without doing anything to resolve the trouble and um, I think you know one of the reasons that um, my my sweet cognitive science colleagues were, were happy to have me here is that they, they had kind of realized that when I make trouble I will try to patch it up <laughs> in some way afterwards you know and and I, I, I think something I care about deeply is only making trouble where you think the problem is worth caring about right. don't sort of go in on something you think is is uninteresting or obviously confused and just bang the table and say you you folk are, are wrong find worthy opponents um in 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 areas that that matter and and then then it's worth making trouble um and when you make trouble in a, a useful way which relies on really understanding what other people are, are, are doing before you criticize them 
then that leads very naturally, if you're lucky, to that second role of synthesizer. Um, and I take that role very seriously. I mean, my colleagues have sometimes laughed at me for saying this, and now I'm, I'm going on, on air to say it. Because I've, I've always believed this, that a, a philosopher should have more time to keep up with a wider range of methods, traditions, and, and problems than, than most empirical scientists should do, just because empirical work is unbelievably arduous and, and time-consuming and uh, uh, energetic. It's sort of, it, it's like, you know, spending five years working on a single short film, you know, ra ra raising the funds for this, this one idea and, and getting the team together and you make it and then you, you present it and it's over in three minutes and you really hope somebody likes it. Same with an experiment, you know, uh, the resources that have to go into to conceptualizing and creating a single experiment are, are just extraordinary and, and that's, you know, daily uh, in life over here I, I'm impressed and of course it doesn't always work so I think things can be time can be wasted philosophers you know of course we can waste time too just as much as anybody but we have that time because our business is reading and writing thinking talking arguing um, but reading and writing and and so it's our kind of responsibility to keep up a bit more with with a wider range of problems topics and um, traditions than other people do and so a, a notion that my friend and colleague Paul Griffiths at Sydney Uni, philosopher of biology, philosopher of mind, um, talked to me about many years ago as a philosopher's catalyst, um, which is a role that, that you know, when things go well, I hope, I hope philosophers can play of putting scientists in touch with each other who might not know about each other's work because they have got their own projects, they've got their own specialist journals, they've got their own, own team and, you know, often wide international links, but maybe not outside that specialist sub-discipline. I feel like psychology is just massive compared to philosophy. Um, e even a sub-discipline like cognitive psychology or some subfield within cognitive psychology like memory, it is too enormous for a single psychologist to keep up with. Um, and, and a philosopher, not uniquely, but a philosopher should have the skills to be able to evaluate work from other fields and say, you guys, did you know that in a slightly different field there's a kind of parallel problem or a slightly different experiment that you could use? Um, again, it doesn't always work, but, but usually the psychologist will be extraordinarily grateful and receptive, you know, if, if you can pitch that, you know, it is like a, like a pitch saying, come and read, read this stuff with me, tell me what you think. Yeah, <clears throat> oh, that's marvellously well put. Um... Like my work as well is about um, merging philosophy of the good life with psychology of well-being. Well, that, I mean, that, that, that's a really p perfect field for this, be, uh, partly because there's a lot of dodgy work in, the, in those areas, yeah, exactly. um, but, but partly because, what, you know, the, the good work that is being done is in wildly different areas. That, that, that's right. And so um, you, you, you need to keep your eyes wide. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about cricket and philosophy as well, mm -hmm. but then I would just reveal that I know absolutely nothing about cricket. That's, that doesn't matter. I mean, I, I can I can easily talk about sport in general without uh, talking cricket in particular. <laughs> but what what is the close link with you? Even written articles about the relation between cricket and philosophy. Is something particular about cricket or just uh, yes and no? I mean, yes in the sense that theoretically, I think every um, complex motor skill is unique and that the right way to analyze it is to place it in its cultural context as well as in the context of the particular task demand. So that, for example, somebody doing the cognitive science of dance um, can't just do that full stop. You've got to ask about well, what type of dance, what tradition, you know, we're looking at ballet, we're looking at, at, at modern dance of one kind or another, we're looking at Bhutto. Um, and obviously there'll be, there'll be patterns, some of the same dancers can Across these these lines, just as occasionally you find a sports person who can transfer their skills across sports, but really, you know, doing physiology, psychology, and 
kind of culture and context together is is a sort of driving methodological force i mean for studying not just sports but any rich real world activity you want to do phenomenology but you also want to do a kind of cognitive and cultural ethnography which is you know where i think anthropology and philosophy and cognitive science need to sort of work together but 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 then no in the sense that you know cricket is just my example it's it's one of the few things i know well sort of from experience um that has this you know rich enough cultural environmental contextual physical um setting you know series of complex situations and, and unique psychological and bodily and um cultural challenges so it it's you know, the, 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 there is a good story about how I, I came to um, write on that. I mean, there was actually a call for papers came around on the philosophy lists. This is probably 2004, 2005 um, for a, a collection of papers on, on cricket and philosophy um, in the way that such calls do. And I, you know, walked down the corridor over there in the philosophy building saying, hey, guys, look at this. You know, somebody wants to do cricket and philosophy. I kind of was driving home that night thinking, hey, yeah, it's not a bad idea because I've got this problem about sort of skill and, and memory and how they work together. But by that stage, I had already been doing some um, work that I, I, it took me a while to realize it, it was connected um, about uh, sort of tacit knowledge, um, you know, a, a concept of much more general importance to philosophy, know-how, um, you know, many different terms for this. And and as I was starting to move into psychology and cognitive science and try to try to compare the way that philosophers drew distinctions between knowing that and knowing how with the way that psychologists distinguished explicit or declarative knowledge or memory from Im implicit or procedural knowledge or memory i just thought this is a, a, a huge and fascinating set set of topics which has kind of taken off a bit in in philosophy um since then but um one of my concerns that's even more sort of active now than it was then is that much discussion in philosophy is very thin um of of embodied cognition in general and expert skills skilled movement in particular it's very thin in, in the sense that um, real life activities in which skill plays a part are used as only sort of temporary examples you know um, and I'm guilty of this myself absolutely saying you know we should think about the you know the, this extraordinary uh, capacity of the expert sports person in, in cricket you know there's the hard ball that, that can potentially kill you coming straight at your face you know and you've got 500 to 600 milliseconds to respond this is a problem for understanding the integration of perception and action and the motor system and, and so on um, that's fine uh, and likewise with lots of other examples from dance or circus or or jazz improvisation something that philosophers who study joint action rightly point to as, as a crucial example of, of um, the way in which people can work together on the basis of some you know, lower level tacit forms of alignment and shared shared understanding. But it's not enough to, to use those as examples, right? You've, you've got to go and study those processes. And, and by studying, I mean, talk to the people, live in those worlds, draw on whatever experience you, you've got, but hang with them, do your ethnography mm -hmm. too. And that's, that's led to some um, kind of real practical and pedagogical changes in the way that I, I think of my academic role too. I mean, it's a dangerous change because it means that there's no longer such a, a clean line between work and life for, yeah, yeah. for the academic. Yeah. Um, and I mean, now I'm studying cricket quite intensely in a, in a number of different projects. And there's a, a kind of sadness to that yeah. because no longer when I'm off playing at weekends is that time off. Quite. <laughs> right. I mean, thank God it's still an activity that you have to kind of focus on hard uh, in order to, to play it. So I'm not sort of 
um, all the time uh, thinking about theory um, while, while I'm playing. That really wouldn't, wouldn't work. But um, more, more seriously, with my incoming PhD students, for example, I'm, I'm kind of going as the, the, they will tell you, so, you know, what, what else do you get up to? You know, what are your other activities and skills? And of course, you know, most uh, philosophers and other, you know, PhD students have rich lives and all kinds of, you know, lots of musicians uh, in our cognitive science department, for, for example, with extraordinary skills. And it's just like, have you ever thought of sort of using that part of your life as, as one source for your work? Yeah, yeah. Maybe not only as a source either, because I've seen you say elsewhere that philosophy needs to be there in order to help people understand what cognitive science really says. So is it also a way of really showing much more uh, vividly to, to the public, so to speak, how, how philosophy works and what philosophy can contribute? I suppose that's not the way I I think of it most of the time because I don't tend to kind of privilege philosophy to that extent as an activity or a discipline. I don't mean that in any kind of negative way, but um, and and I sh I, it's worth saying that I, I I've sort of felt much happier about being a philosopher by training since moving to a cognitive science department where. Yeah. At least in in many contexts, there's an acceptance, a welcoming of the integration of of theory and empirical practice. Whereas in a lot of fields of of philosophy at at, at the moment, across different traditions, the sciences and cognitive science in particular is kind of you know slightly on on the outside. Um, and you know it, it takes some argument, it takes some effort um, from people like me who who are kind of chafing against the boundaries of philosophy. Now I'm not in a philosophy department. I don't have to worry about that. I can I can just use the bits of philosophy that I I know, love, and 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 can um, can work with. But but having said that, yeah, I mean I, I I've always been um, uneasy about the picture of philosophy as a kind of master discipline or master discourse, um, whether that picture is promulgated by philosophers or in the world. And I, I just don't think philosophers have um, any kind of unique access to either method or, or truths. Um, lots of bits of philosophy, both in terms of technique and method and in terms of our traditions and, and content, are extraordinary and rich and wonderful and, and are potentially of use to lots of other people. Um, but they don't necessarily cohere, and there's no reason that they should. Um, so one bit of philosophy very often has much more in common with some other activity, whether it, it, it's literary criticism or, or, or theatre, um, or whether it's with cognitive neuroscience um, or, or, or economics or, or some other discipline that uses logic, for example, than it does with the rest of philosophy. So this idea of a neatly bounded discipline, which is a kind of, you know, academic university, natural kind that I don't have much faith in. So I don't, I don't, you know, when I give public talks, I, I suppose I'm trying to present um, a vision of a sort of academic life um, and and of the the pleasure and the the point of following topics through um, and following particular lines of research and ideas through and you've got to follow them where they lead you you know if if where they lead you kind of looks like it's outside what somebody else at the moment counts as philosophy then kind of bad luck or as I would say good luck you know because <laughs> that, that sort of makes life more interesting yeah. that you've got to learn new skills to follow you know in that way precisely but I, there was, you had one phrase that really struck me um, so you said that nothing but a significantly revised ethics has any prospect of survival in a de deterministic <laughs> world. I'm really curious what you mean by that. <laughs> Great. <laughs> this is something I, I thought might, might co come up and why I haven't done any work in ethics, really. So I'll start with 
some kind of history um, here, because when I was studying ancient philosophy as an undergraduate, um, I'd kind of read enough Aristotle to know that, that he was my kind of philosopher in terms of his sort of general wor worldview compared to Plato, who I'd already sort of, you know, learned to love in terms of style and, and you know, the, the, the vastness of the canvas, but to kind of feel a kind of deep antipathy towards metaphysically. Um, and so it, the, the way the syllabus worked at that, at that time, um, you had to choose um, one of two works of Aristotle, either the Ethics and the Comician Ethics or the Physics, and one work of, of Plato's, uh, the Republic or the, the Theotetus. And I just sort of made the wrong choice. I read the, the Physics thinking, oh, Aristotelian natural philosophy, um, and I read the Republic, which, you know, I ended up kind of <laughs> I mean, learning an awful lot from loving and hating at the same time as, as we do. And I should have read Aristotle's Ethics because, you know, that, that, that now is the kind of ethics I would, would sort of want to, to adhere to to some, to some extent and sort of gone into Plato's epistemology with lots of more, more technical issues. But m more, more generally, that, that period of, as an undergraduate, I, I was, you know, realizing that I was some kind of radical hard determinist and some kind of radical reductionist materialist. These, these were not, um, not really philosophical positions that I had worked out in any sort of, um, on the basis of any reading I'd done, or on the basis of any clear evidence. I just sort of realized when I read other people and talked to other people in the classes uh, that, you know, this, this was where I was. It actually came up most vividly studying the pre-Socratics, um, studying very, various views, and, and, and Aristotle as well in the physics um, on, on chance and necessity. And my, my teachers and my, my sort of fellow students and I just didn't, understand each other because a lot of you know my, my assumptions were just that you know well obviously we're in a kind of world in which causal necessity is is you know all, all that we've got you know there is no sort of outside injection um from from us into that causal chain any freedom we've got has to work work from within and gee, it's hard to work out how uh, that that can make sense so the idea of ethics having to be revised in um in a deterministic world was really just a kind of uneasiness with um compatibilist Orthodoxy. Well, an easiness I still share. I mean, um, I, I now realise there are much more subtle forms of compatibilism around than I was aware of at that time. But I still think that a lot of you know our legal system um, of you know social norms and moral life kind of rests on assumptions about the nature of voluntary action, for example, which are you know not not easy to defend. Yeah, exactly. Well. Thanks so much for your time. Fantastic. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks, John. Okay, there you have it. It is just so refreshing and inspiring to see how successful Sutton has been when it comes to showing the relevance of philosophy. I couldn't agree more when it comes to the role of being a constructive troublemaker and synthesizer and that philosophers have a possibly unique role in keeping an overview that could be very beneficial to empirical researchers. Okay, I've got another interview scheduled in two weeks with one of the most well-known contemporary philosophers, someone whom I'm sure will be interesting to those of you interested in philosophy of science and philosophy of biology. I'll get that up as soon as I can, and I hope you will be back then for what is going to be episode 9 of Such That Cast. <laughs>